We've, uh, we've been going through the book of James now for several months, and uh, we're nearing the end now. And we have, we've viewed James, and I think one of the main themes throughout the book of James is what does a living faith in Jesus Christ look like? So we've titled this series through the book of James, A Portrait of Living Faith. What does living faith look like? Today we're going to read, I'm going to read James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. And I think this has a key for us of a living and victorious faith in Jesus Christ. James 5, verses 7 to 12. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, teach us this morning. Teach us this morning, Father, what it looks like to be patient. God, to face the challenging things we face in life, with patience, with endurance, with steadfastness. God, we need your help. This is so unnatural. It is so supernatural. It is only something that we can do by your Spirit. And so I pray that you'd show us here in your word that you would enable us by your Spirit to live this out in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. So the main point of this passage is very clear. It's the first two words. And it's something you and I, it's something we all need. It's patience. The first two words are be patient. And we could sum up the entire message with those two words, be patient. You might say, well, okay. Well, there's a little bit more than that, right? There's a little bit more than that. Have you ever been, everyone here probably has, you've been on a, on a road trip, a family road trip, either when you were a child or now that you have your own children. And whether it's three hours or 13 hours, it's a, it's a road trip, Okay. You have little people in the back seat. Maybe you were once one of those little people chirping the entire time. How much longer? When are we going to be there? Are we almost there? Right? And it starts 15 minutes after the trip starts. Has that ever happened to you? Of course. You were once that kid. If you have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, when you and I are suffering adversity, we're going through a challenge, we're going through a trial, we tend to do the same thing. We're like a little child in the back seat saying, how much longer? Are we done yet? Are we almost there? Can we call it quits now? Can we stop now? We need patience. You and I need patience. We need patience for small little petty irritations And we need patience for gigantic, massive evils we're facing and everything in between. We need patience. 
I was uh, just kind of, when you read through the Psalms, there's a phrase that the psalmists say over and over again. Uh, I didn't look up every single one, but I, I found at least seven in a pretty quick cursory overview. The psalmists say things like, how long, O Lord? So when we say that, we're in good company. We're in company with the psalmist, with King David or with Asaph or the sons of Korah who are crying out to God, how long, O Lord? Will you forget us forever? The prophet Habakkuk, the second verse of his prophecy, said this. I thought this verse really came to mind as I read through James because James seems to have this this idea in mind. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Now, of course, Habakkuk has good theology. He knows that God hears. But God's not responding to his cry in the way that Habakkuk wants him to. It seems as though God does not hear. Perhaps some hear feel that way, even today, as you're facing this ongoing adversity, this ongoing issue, this ongoing trial that doesn't seem to go away, and you're crying out to God for help, and it seems as though he doesn't hear. Patience hardly tops the list of the most exciting and desirable virtues, right? I mean, who here is like, of all the things you want from God, I want patience. Probably not. But the Bible says over and over again that patience is absolutely essential for the good and blessed life in Christ. Totally essential. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. If you want to live a good life, if you want to be blessed, then you must have patience. And I think we, I think we even know this from our own experience. When you are irritated... When you're frustrated, when you, are, when you have a short fuse and short temper, you are miserable. And usually you make life somewhat miserable for those around you. And so good life, a blessed life, it comes to those who are patient. So the big point from this passage, the overarching point for James 5, 7 to 12 is, Be patient when you're facing adversity. Be patient when you're suffering difficulty. Be patient when you're going through trials. Now it seems like James, this is a big theme for James, how we handle trials. This is a big theme for James. In fact, bookmarked, or bookended, excuse me, the bookends of James, James 1 and James 5 now, we see James addressing this theme. How you and I handle adversity. How you and I handle trials. If you remember back from chapter 1, James says this. It's the very first verse after he introduces himself. He says, brothers, sisters, count it all joy when you go through trials of various kinds. When you meet them on the road of life, count it joy. Because you know that God is working steadfastness in you. And let this thing called steadfastness have its full effect in you so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that's like right off the bat. James says, count it joy. And here in chapter 5, James addressing these same people, going through these same trials and difficulties. If you remember last week's passage, some of them were having 
rich landowners abuse them and oppress them. But I think he's talking also just trials in general. Here he says this. So he says, count all joy, chapter 1. Here in chapter 5 he says, be patient. Be patient. Let me ask you a question. When you're going through something really hard, really challenging, is there anything more difficult than to count it joy and to be patient? Counting a joy saying, Lord, you are good. God, I thank you that in the, in the midst of this, you are working, God. So I count this joy. To be patient is saying, I trust the Lord. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to strive. I'm not going to get frustrated. I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to be patient. Is there anything more difficult than that? Here in James 5, 7 to 12, there are three words and phrases used to describe this overarching idea of patience in the midst of trials. The first is just the word patience. Okay, we see it. In verse 7, we see it in verse 8. Be patient, brothers. Verse 8, you also be patient. This is the most passive of the three words and phrases used to describe this, this heart attitude of patience. It's passive. This is mainly passive. It means to wait. Just to wait. It means to bear offenses without getting angry. It's where we get the word that we don't hear very often anymore. But at King James Version you'd, uh, of the Bible, you'd read this often. Long-suffering means to suffer long, to suffer for a long time through something, through adversity. And James gives us the example of a farmer. He says, you see the farmer. He goes out and he plants his crops, he plants his seeds, and then he waits. And he just waits. He plants his seeds and then he waits for the autumn and the spring rains. To bring forth fruit. So, what does it mean to be patient? It means to wait. Like the farmer plants a seed and he waits for the rains. It means to wait for God to rain upon us. The, the second phrase that's used, word or phrase, is the phrase establish your heart. We see that in verse 8 establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. This idea of establish your hearts is more active than just waiting, than patience. The word patience, just waiting. It means to stand firm. It means to be determined. It means to have this this steely resolve. It's like, I am not moving. Okay, I have these headwinds coming at me, this adversity coming at me, and I will not move. I'm determined. I'm resolved to stand firm. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse, I believe it's 51, um, Luke 9, I think it's 51, it says about Jesus, when he saw that, his, that it, was, it, was, it was close to the time where he was going to be lifted up, crucified, it says he set his face to, toward Jerusalem. It's the same word as here, establish your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. He set his face. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to get him off his path to going to Jerusalem. He had a mission. So, to establish your hearts is like a soldier who stands firm while holding the line in a battle. Establish your hearts. The third word that's used here, or phrase that's used here, 
in James 5, 7 to 12, is even more active. So we have patience, just waiting. We have establish your hearts, which is more stand firm. And then we have remain steadfast. Remain steadfast. It says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast when they suffered. To remain steadfast is even more, this is even more active than the other two. It means to persevere. It means to keep going. I'm reminded of, this, of the, the, uh, the, the, the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. He just keeps going. He's on his path. He's a pilgrim on his way to the celestial city and he keeps going. It means to steadfastly continue on the right path. The runner must remain steadfast or persevere if he or she is going to finish the marathon. They must continue going. They must continue. They must remain steadfast. James says in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That's what we're going for. So the main point this morning is when you're going through adversity, and people here are, everyone probably to some degree, minor irritations, massive evils you are facing, when you're going through adversity, be patient. Strengthen your heart in the Lord. Remain steadfast. Stay on the narrow road. Now, I found it interesting as I was thinking about this passage this week. Our passage this morning says this. Are you suffering? I'm paraphrasing. I'm, I'm rewording it. Are you suffering? And the answer is yes. Some, I mean, to some degree, some way, then be patient. The very next verse that Reed will teach on next week, ask this, are you suffering? Yes, then pray. Wait a second, which is it? Do we wait or do we pray? Do, are we patient or do we pray? Do, do we just wait or do we seek the Lord? Do we go after God? Do we pursue him and his answer? Well, Um, The answer is both. It's not an either or, but it's a both and, isn't it? We have a hard time with that. We oftentimes, we're we're very much an either or kind of people. But it's a both and. I'm not going to address that today. Today is, are you suffering? Then be patient. Next week is, are you suffering? Then pray. Perhaps patience comes first, Because we more naturally, when we are hurting and going through adversity, we more naturally cry out for help. We would more naturally come to God and say, God, help me. I'm praying, help me, Lord. What comes harder to us is when we're going through challenging circumstances and we learn to humbly and in a trusting way wait on the Lord and be patient. So, we're to be patient in our praying, and we're to be prayerful in our patience. So this week, patience, next week, pray. I don't want you to to walk away today thinking, well, the only thing, I mean, I can't ask God to help me because I'm just supposed to be patient. No, that's part of it. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's not the whole story. So here's the real question from our passage today. 
If I'm supposed to be patient when I'm facing adversity, and I find that very difficult, I find that extremely challenging to wait on the Lord. I want to do something. I want to fix this. I want Him to fix it. How? How do we face trials patiently? Isn't that like the billion-dollar question? How do we face trials patiently? I mean, how do we actually really do this? And guys, patience is not biting our upper lip when we feel like screaming. That's not patience. That is not the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is a heart that is content in God and waiting on Him. This is a work of God's Spirit. So how do we remain steadfast? How do we remain patient when facing trials? How do we do this? I have four four things. I'm just going to say them and we'll back up and take them one at a time. First, live in light of the Lord's return. Second, recognize the Lord's judgment. Third, follow godly examples of those who have persevered. And fourth, realize the Lord's ultimate purpose. So first, live in light of the Lord's return. Verse 7 says this. I'm going to read all of it. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. How long are we to be patient? Until Jesus comes back. Right? Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Three times, James mentions this this sense that there's an imminent, that that the return of Jesus is imminent. He says in verse 7, when he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse uh, verse 8, when he says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then when he says, the judge is at the door. The Greek word for coming, the coming of the Lord is at hand, is the the word parousia. And it's a technical term regarding Christ's second coming to close out this present age. Jesus will come again. He will split the skies. He will come with a host of angels and he will end this present age. This is the final hope for every Christian. Now the two phrases, the coming of the Lord and his coming being at hand, gives us the sense that it could happen any moment, any time. When I say that the Lord, the coming of the Lord is at hand, what kind of emotion does this incite in you? Eagerness? Anticipation? Like, I want to be ready. I want to be ready for His coming. That's exactly what it should do. So James says, be patient because Jesus is coming soon. Be patient until He comes and He's coming soon. Now we we must remember that James is steeped deep in the words of Jesus. The Lord Jesus is His half-brother and James is merely, not merely, James is echoing the words of his half-brother. Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 and 25 say the same thing, gives us a sense that the Son of Man, Jesus the King, is coming soon. 
Regarding his, his, his second coming, Jesus said things like, nobody knows the day or hour. The angels don't know, and even the Son doesn't know, but the Father alone. Jesus says that he will come personally, he will come visibly, so it's, it'll be unmistakable of his coming. His coming will end human history as we know it. And he says many times in Matthew 24 and 25, he urges believers to be ready, to be ready for his coming, to not be sleeping, to not be, he, he, there's this one parable he, he tells, and he says, there's this one servant of the master who says, my master's long in coming, and so he goes off and he begins eating with the drunk, or drinking with the drunkards and beating his other servants. And it says, the master will come at a time he doesn't expect. So he urges his people to be ready for his coming. And you might ask, how can this be? This was written, we know, almost 2,000 years ago. A little less than 2,000 years ago, James wrote the epistle of James. We might think, he's taking a long time. I mean, if James said, the judge is at the door, I mean, he's like at the door, he's got his hand on the door handle. That the coming of the Lord is at hand, it's right at hand. Like you reach out and grab it. You might think it's taking a long time. Have you ever thought that? How can this be? 2,000 years is not at hand. Peter helps us in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 10. Listen to what Peter says. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter shows us three things about the coming of the Lord that I think help us understand this better. First, first what Peter shows us is that God's scale on time is very different than ours, right? A day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. For the Lord, it's been two days since James wrote this. Two days. Now, I don't think that means we should consider, well, he could, maybe it would be 10,000 years before he comes again. But the Lord's scale is different than ours. He's not delaying God is not delaying. He's got everything figured out. The second thing Peter shows us is that if God is delaying, if there's any sense that God is delaying, he's delaying so that sinners might have more time to repent. And that's good news. The third thing we see here is that Jesus will come. And when he comes, it'll be like a thief in the night. We should live with a sense of anticipation and eagerness and urgency that the Lord is coming. There's always been hysteria surrounding the second coming of Christ. People trying to determine dates, right? There's a, what was the guy's name? Harold Camping, a few years ago. He did this a few times prior to that. 
He ended up passing away, but I think it was the third time he did this. He predicted the date. Guess what? He was wrong. The, the New Testament does not encourage us to ask the question, exactly when will the Lord return? It encourages us to ask this question, am I ready? Or will I be ready when he does? So the point of, that James is, is trying to draw out here is that when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, all the trials and adversities we face are going to be over. They're going to be gone. They're going to vanish. And that is a glorious thing. That is our hope. That is our greatest hope. It's not that everything works out for us well in this life as we think it ought to, but it's that Jesus is coming back and he will wipe away every tear and every cause of sin and stumbling and pain and difficulty will vanish when he comes. Every petty irritation, isn't that good? Every petty irritation will be gone. Those little things that just frustrate you and me. It'll be gone and every massive evil will be removed forever. And we will be fully satisfied. There'll be no reason for impatience in the presence of Jesus forever. So live in light of the Lord's return. Second, recognize the Lord's judgment. Verse 9 says this, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, or look, the judge is at the door. Not only is the second coming to be looked at or looked for with hopeful anticipation, but it's important for you and I to recognize that when Christ comes again, it's judgment time. It is judgment time when Jesus comes. Sadly, when we are squeezed by trials and adversity squeezes us, what happens is, unfortunately, often, is it spills over into our relationships with other people. That's why James says, do not grumble against one another. When you're facing trials, don't grumble against one another. When I'm facing pressures and difficulties, there are times when Alyssa has no idea. She has no clue, but I come home at the end of the day and I grumble against her. Right? These, these, the pressures sometimes spill over into our relationships with other people. My wife, my children might experience my grumbling because I am being squeezed by adversity. And James says, don't do that. Don't murmur. Don't grumble at each other. And then he says, because you will stand before the judge. He is at the door. <clears throat> He's at the door. Jesus in Matthew 12, verses uh, 34 to 37 says this. Listen to these words. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For out of, excuse me, um, the good person out of the good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, he says, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every single careless word they've spoken. For 
By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. By your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You and I need to know two things about judgment. More than that, maybe, but at least two. If you are in Christ, you will not face God's wrath on judgment day. You will not face his wrath on judgment day. If you're not in Christ, you indeed will. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I urge you to today. Trust in Christ and be freed from the wrath to come. But if you are in Christ, you, may not, you will not face God's wrath, but you will face God's assessment. You will face God's assessment. You will stand before Jesus and he will assess your life and my life. And James is saying, don't grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Stop grumbling. Stop murmuring. Because by your words, you're going to be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. I think this is a hard line to walk. I just do. I think, we, I think we struggle with this because we're like, wait a second, I thought my sins were taken away. I thought everything I'd done, I thought he removed them as far as the east is from the west. He forgets our sins. He remembers them no more. But then on judgment day, I'm gonna, my life is going to be assessed. That's what the scriptures teach us. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. I, I love the, the way he connects these two things. He says, we make it our aim to please God because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will give an account of our lives, the things done in the body, whether good or evil. I heard, uh, I, I'm not going to get the exact phrase and I can't remember who said it, but I, someone, I'd heard somebody say or read somewhere, somebody said, I thought, it was, I thought it was good advice. It could, if this is all you think about, it could be, you could be an unhappy and somber person. But I heard this one person say, living every moment in light of the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to give an account. I'm going to stand before Jesus someday. I think we ought to think about other things too. But let's keep that before us. Recognize the fact that you are going to stand before Jesus someday. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? You're going to stand before him someday. Therefore, do not murmur. When you're going through trials, don't grumble. Don't use your mouth to sin against others when you're going through difficulties. Make it your aim to please him, like Paul did. Number three, follow godly examples of those who persevered. Verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Of any people in the Bible, the prophets had a really hard task. I mean, if you've ever read through the, the, the prophets or read about them, none of them, not one of them had an easy job description or had an easy job. I think of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this amazing encounter with God. Like he, ha- he has this vision of the exalted pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Right? He saw this, 
this king on a throne. The, tra- the, the trail of his robe filled the entire temple. There were these seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So amazing, so profound was this, um, this encounter with God. Isaiah thought he was going to die. I mean, he thought he was going to just be incinerated. And uh, God said, we have a task. Who shall we send? And Isaiah said, I'll go. And God gave him his, his description, the, the description of his mission. And it was essentially this. You're going to go speak to these rebellious people and they are not going to listen to you. You're going to speak to them and they're, you're, they're going to hear but not understand. They're going to see but they're not going to perceive. They are a rebellious people. How would you like that? But he persevered. Jeremiah is someone else. In Jeremiah 2, uh, he speaks this word. I mean, it's the Lord speaking through him. And he says, I have, I have two things against you, Judah. You've, co- you've committed two evils. One, you have rejected me, the fountain of living water. And two, you've, you've dug cisterns for yourselves. And they're broken cisterns that can't even hold water. And in chapter 38, these people that he's prophesying to, they don't like him. They don't like the things he's saying. They say, oh yeah, Jeremiah, remember you talked about those cisterns? There's one over here. We're going to throw you in it. That's what they did. They threw him in a pit. The pit had no water. It says Jeremiah sank in the mud. But he persevered. He was faithful. Daniel was, was faithful to God. And what did it get him? Being thrown in a lion's den. I, I think um, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he is preaching before this hostile crowd. They don't like what he's talking He's talking about Jesus. They don't like it. He's doing miracles. People are following him. They're jealous. They do not like him. They want him to shut up. They want him out of here. And he's talking to the, this group of people, and he says these words at the end of his sermon, verse 52 of Acts 7. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? In other words, all of them. And James says, look at the prophets if you want an example of patience and suffering. Look at them. They're an example for us. They persevered. In Hebrews chapter 11, these prophets, these men and women of God find their way into the hall of faith. It's what we call chapter 11 of Hebrews. Starting in verse the whole chapter of Hebrews is, well, there's a section where it's like these people by faith, they conquered, they, they, they shut the mouths of lions, they did this, they did that, all these, these mighty, um, glorious acts of valor. And then it shifts in verse 36 from what, what might appear to be victory to what might appear to be defeat. It says others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Uh, it's believed that the prophet Isaiah was actually sawn in two. That's the way he was executed. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Listen to this. Of whom... The world was not worthy. The world is not worthy of people like this. 
They, were, they wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So D- James says to those going through adversity, you and I today look to their example. But he says more. He actually says, look or behold, we consider them blessed. It's not just that we look to their example like, well, I guess that's the right thing to do. But we actually consider them blessed. To consider blessed means we pronounce blessing on these people. We read stories like this and it invigorates our faith. It does something for us and to us. I was reminded this week of Amy Carmichael. This, as a young girl, she was in Ireland. She grew up in Ireland. As a young girl, she wanted to be a missionary. She ended up going to India. And this is before India had a huge missionary footprint. (coughs) And her ministry was mainly to young children, especially girls, who were going to be taken by by by, um, the, the Indian people and used in Hindu sexual rituals. And she said, no way. She rescued these young girls. At the age of about 60, she had a bad fall, fractured some of her bones, left her largely crippled the rest of her life. She was bedridden, almost completely bedridden for the last two decades of her life. What did she do? She didn't pout. She didn't complain. She probably cried out to God. She probably, like the psalmist said, oh Lord, how long? but she remained steadfast. She entered into a new phase of ministry where she began writing and her writings were spread to the multitudes. She was steadfast. We consider her blessed. I mean, her her biographies of her are read by thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps even millions. We consider someone like her blessed. We pronounce blessing. Man, she was blessed blessed. She was a blessed woman. Is there anything more invigorating? I realize there's some graphic content, but is there anything more invigorating than reading stories from a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs? We just, we are encouraged by these stories. A book that really impacted me probably 12 or 13 years ago was a book called Back to Jerusalem. is a story of the, the Chinese church and how during the Cultural Revolution and the rise of Mao, uh, he wanted to snuff out all opposition, but supremely, um, mainly the Christian church. And yet they persevered. They remained steadfast and the church grew and was blessed. We consider them blessed How do we know that these people are blessed? Because we talk about them. I mean, we talk about them. They made an imprint on the world by God's grace. We talk about these people. They are blessed. In fact, is there any person in the Bible you can think of, any of the notable characters in the Bible that didn't go through great adversity? I can't think of any. Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Apparently, this is the road of blessing. So encourage yourselves to be patient in adversity by looking 
to godly examples of those who have persevered. Number four, you and I, when we're facing adversity, need to realize the Lord's ultimate purpose. The second part of verse 11 says this, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. ESV says the purpose of the Lord. The, uh, the NIV says what the Lord finally brought about or the outcome the Lord brought about. Um, I think there's a little difference between those two phrases, but I think both are true to the story of Job. I mean, when you know the story of Job, when you've read through that, we see what God finally brought about. We're like, wow, that is awesome. And we see that the Lord had a greater purpose than just the difficulties and the suffering Job experienced. Here's what I want, I want to tell you today. God is up to something in your pain. He has purpose, and his purpose is wonderful. His purpose is to show himself rich in compassion and mercy. Do you hear that? In your pain, in your difficulty, his purpose is not for you to remain in pain and difficulty and adversity. His purpose is to show himself compassionate and merciful. I was reminded of Exodus 34 came to mind as I was thinking about this idea of God showing himself merciful and compassionate. In Exodus 34, this is the story where where Moses says, Lord, I want to see your glory. Is there any hungry Christian who has not said those words to God? God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. God said, well, you can't see my face because it would kill you but I'll show you my glory. And he revealed himself to him. In verse 6 of Exodus 34, actually starting verse 5, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And here's what he proclaimed. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious compassionate and merciful, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses said, show me your glory. And God descended and said, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to proclaim my name. I am the Lord, full of mercy and grace. He is the Lord full of compassion and mercy. How did God show himself compassionate and merciful to Job? Remember the story of Job? I mean, the first chapter, maybe maybe first two chapters, Job has everything stripped of him. His children die, all of his flocks, everything taken away. Then you have about 36 chapters or so of this conversation between Job and his um, friends. Didn't go so well. And then at the end, God reveals himself to Job. He comes to Job and speaks to Job, addresses Job for about three chapters. 
At the end of God addressing Job, Job is so awestruck with God's glory. You know what he says? Oh, Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Listen to what he said next. I have heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Isn't that amazing? He had heard of God. He had known God with the hearing of his ears, but he caught a glimpse of the glory of God. He says, and I repent. But it doesn't end there. Next, it says that God restored to Job everything that he had lost. And then some. All, he, had ten, he had 10 children that died. He had received, again, 10 children. He had flocks that were bigger, more servants. He was more blessed than before. I think you and I should expect blessing in this life. I really do. I mean, physical blessing, spiritual blessing for sure, and, and physical blessing as well. I really, I really do. Um, and I think when we go through adversity, God can show up. And I think we, we pray for these things. We pray that God would bless in a spiritual way those who are going through adversity, whether it's providing for another job or financial resources or healing or whatever, many things. But because of James' emphasis on the Lord's coming, I tend to think that James is mainly pointing us to the purpose of the Lord showing himself compassionate and merciful at Christ's return. When Jesus comes again, remember the first line, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. He says the Lord is, his coming is at hand. This is hard for us to, we are very much sensory people. We, we live largely by what we hear, see, feel. All of us do. And we really feel and hear and see the adversity we are facing. We really do. And we're meant to. We're not like those who, we're not Christian scientists who just deny reality. We we feel it, we know it, we see it, we hear it. So, when the Lord comes, is it going to be worth it, everything we've gone through in this life? If we take the example of Job, I would say, oh yeah, absolutely. Think of Job again, he had heard of God, but then he saw God. Everything that was taken from Job was restored to Job, and then some. When Jesus comes again, we will see him. And oh, what a glorious day that'll be. We will marvel at him at his coming, it says in 2 Thessalonians. We will marvel at him. He will come and we will, we will look up if we're still alive at that time. And we will marvel at his coming. And when he comes, every adversity, trial, difficulty, from the smallest to the greatest, will pale in comparison with the glory that we will receive at his coming. That's what, J, that's what Paul says, Romans eight eighteen. He says, 
I consider the sufferings of this present time, and if anyone in the Bible knew suffering, oh my goodness, it was Paul. I mean, he knew it. He felt it. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 4, this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I think what God wants to help us to do is to be so in awe of what awaits us, the hope that awaits us at the coming of Christ, that whatever affliction we go through in this life, it seems light and momentary. In comparison, in comparison. It's hard, it's painful, it really is. But in comparison with the Lord, how he will reveal himself as compassionate and merciful at the coming of Christ, it's light and momentary. So realize the, ulti- the Lord's ultimate purpose. And again, next week we're going to talk about, of course we pray. Of course we seek the Lord for help, for healing, for deliverance, for rescue. Okay, finally, here's how I want to land today. I want to ask you a question. Where is the Lord? Where is he when you're facing adversity? Where is he? He's with us, isn't he? Is he? We're not like the prophets of, we're not like prophets of Baal. Elijah said, Elijah said, call out, call louder. Maybe he's on vacation or taking a nap. No. He's with us. The Lord of glory is with us. Isaiah 43, 2 says, God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I'm not just going to be on the other side beckoning you to come. I'm going to be with you. Today, you and I are being called to be patient, determined, steadfast in any and every trial we face. Every single one, the smallest to the biggest. But you and I are never, ever, ever called to go through them alone. Never. Jesus said this is the greatest promise that he gave, this is, well, this, these are the sweetest words in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always to the very end of the earth. He said to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Of course, he's talking about by the Holy Spirit. I will come to you. I will be with you. I will dwell in you. In fact, I think the Lord means to give us, at times, sometimes, the sweetest fellowship of his presence in the middle of our greatest difficulty and pain. I think of even Cindy's story before she was healed of cancer, the times she had where Jesus came very near and spoke very tenderly to her in her pain and suffering. I think of Paul and Silas in the jail in Acts 16 or 17. They were singing. They were in a Roman jail. First century Roman jails, were, they were not country club. They've gotten, they'd gotten flogged. They'd gotten beaten. Their backs were ripped open. They were probably chained so they couldn't move, chained to each other, perhaps back to back. 
And what are they doing? They're singing. How do they do that? It doesn't explicitly say, but I think we can say the Lord was there. Richard Richard Vermbrand started Voice of the Martyrs. He wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. Another one called In God's Underground. It's one of those two books that I've read of his. I can't remember which one. But he talks about how he was in a communist prison in Romania because he was a pastor. In Romania, many communist countries, they rounded up Christians, put them in labor camps. And he was... I can't remember exactly. He was underground three stories, five stories, something like that in this jail cell for months on end. And he said those times were the hardest in one sense for sure, but in in another sense, they were the sweetest because Jesus came to him in such a powerful way. I want to read you. This is a, I I got this out of... um, a book we have, a guy named John Patton. He was a missionary, I think, to the New Hebrides Island, South East Pacific, I believe. And he was among people. When, when, he, said he, when he told his uh, church he wanted to go to this place to be a missionary, they said, they're cannibals, they'll eat you. <laughs> so this was not a friendly place for him to go. And he spent a lot of time running from the natives there because they wanted to kill him. Here's one account of, that he gives in a biography. He says this, I climbed into a tree and was left there alone. He's on the run. Climbed into a tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone. If it be to to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling friendship and fellowship. And then he asks this question. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, facing whatever you're facing, in the very embrace of death itself, he asks this, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Do you have a friend in Christ who will not fail you? Now, people here, to my knowledge, are not facing prison or imminent death. But what you are facing, the adversity you are facing, may seem like prison. The adversity you're facing, it might seem easier if you died than to continue going through it. Be patient. Stand firm. Continue walking with Jesus on the narrow road. You are not alone. You are not alone. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you that there is good reason for us to be comforted and encouraged here in this passage. And God, I don't know all the challenges people are facing in their own hearts here today. I know my own, and I know some, but God, you know our, our hearts are an open book to you. Our lives are completely open before you. We can't hide, and why would we want to hide from you? God, I pray you just open up our hearts that we would tell all of our hearts to you and wait on you and stand firm in Christ and persevere with Jesus because if we are in Christ, we do have a friend with us. So God, comfort and encourage your people this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.